Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. This is really cool. From 20th Century Fox comes Screen Dive, the first ever podcast developed and produced by a major Hollywood studio. Screen Dive reexamines some of our most beloved films through new interviews and behind-the-scenes insights with the artists who brought them to life. I mean, we're talking about iconic films like The Sandlot, Planet of the Apes, Deadpool, and The Devil Wears Prada. Uh, this is a really cool idea because... Uh, Basically, 20th Century Fox owns the rights to these films and are getting together some of the biggest people behind them to talk about them for the first time. It's like a DVD commentary without having to buy the DVD or watch it at the same time. So listen to Screen Dive on October 30th on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. That's Screen Dive. The year, 1933. The world is on the brink of war. There's only one man who can bring everyone together. Groucho Marx. God help us. The movie, Duxit. Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. Amy Nicholson is away out of the country this week. This is the show where we watch the AFI's top 100 films to see if they are still relevant, still fun to watch, and are necessary for our new film canon. Uh, each week, Amy and I go on and discuss these films, and you can see what we've watched on unspooledpod.com. Definitely check us out there, and follow us on our Twitter at unspooled, and you can also follow along with everyone listening at our Facebook page. But let's get into last week's movie, which was The African Queen. And there's been so many great comments about it. I want to start off with one that's a little bit longer from our friend Cameron H. I know him from my How Did This Get Made message boards. But Cameron writes, while I don't know where Amy and Paul land on a spiritual level, I've noticed that when it comes to the presentation of Christianity in these films, particularly Christian metaphors, they tend to either miss them completely or make shallow generalizations. You know, Paul talks about how the ending didn't fit or make sense because nothing up until that point suggested that they were going to survive. But literally, the whole movie is full of little miracles. 
miracles. I mean, surviving the rapids, the sun and the sniper's eye, the rain that gets them to the lake, the torpedo, their salvation. However, if you're not looking at it from a spiritual standpoint, it all seems like a series of lucky breaks that, I guess, kind of seem dumb and trivial. I guess what I'm saying is, if you exorcise your Judeo-Christian God from the narrative, the whole thing loses uh, a ton of meaning. And I feel like the intended audience in 1951 was probably predominantly white and Christian. Because our society is more secular, I feel like a lot of the things might be lost on today's audience, and that might have been more apparent and readily accepted uh, 70 years ago. It doesn't make it good or bad, but it just puts you in a different mindset. I thought that was actually a great point of view. Uh, That is really interesting. I mean, you know, to look at it all as like, you know, God is playing a part in all of the African queen. I think if you're going that way, you could be a little bit more explicit with it. Uh, You know, I don't think it has to be so hidden, you know, that God is just in everything and we have to just accept that because then every movie is under that umbrella. And then I think that that dilutes every movie. But that's actually really uh, a great idea because she is uh, a missionary. And so maybe uh, God was like, I'll give you a break. Um, this is interesting. A lot of people on the forums have been upset about Filmstruck because Filmstruck was a place where a lot of you found the films that we were watching here. I also am a Filmstruck subscriber, and I am incredibly bummed that Filmstruck is going away. It was amazing. Their Criterion Collection, their personally curated movie selection, it was one of my favorite apps. I know it's been sucked away, but you know what? Have hope, people. Filmstruck will come back. And it will be better than ever. I think it's going to be just kind of merged into this giant WB monstrosity. Then we're going to be paying like 50 bucks a month because we need our Hulu and our Netflix and all this other bullshit. So Filmstruck will come back. I believe it will. It just will be part of another thing that we'll all have to buy and maybe even pay more for, which sucks. Another thing that a lot of people brought up last week was that Long Pig is actually a nickname for human meat. So now I get it. Human meat is what they meant. Okay, thank you. You learn something every day. All right, people, uh, here we go. Oh, Chauncey Telsey was upset with Amy because he felt that she implied that it's immature to like rum. Uh, And you know what? Uh, I have to say, in Amy's defense, if you've not had good rum, uh, you can really kind of miss the boat. My entire college life was spent having really bad rum. Then, I think in New Orleans, I found Kraken rum, and now I'm like, oh, this is delicious. I'm going to get Amy to try some of that Kraken rum for our next record, and she will tell you if she likes that rum. I mean, put that little Coke in there. Oh, rum and Coke, it's so good. That's all for last week's movie, African Queen. Now, let's get into this week's feature presentation. Amy, let me set the stage for you. It's 1933. The average wage of an American worker is about $1,550 a year. Adolf Hitler is now ensconced as the dictator of Germany. The Gestapo is established. Alcatraz becomes a federal penitentiary. Wiley Post is the first man to fly solo around the world. The Loch Ness Monster is sighted for the first time in modern history. Shirley Temple signs a contract with Fox at only five years old. King Kong is in the theaters, and the first ever drive-in opens. It's also the year that the Marx Brothers comes out with Duck Soup. Duck Soup. It is the last movie that the Marx Brothers make with Paramount before they switch over to MGM. It is the story of Groucho Marx being installed as the leader of a fictitious country called Fredonia, his brothers Harpo and Chico being spies for a rival country of Sylvania, 
And basically just hijinks ensue. Plot from that point is like, I don't know, there's a bunch of crazy shit happening and chaos. <laughs> is, that, is that an okay fair plot summary? Yeah. You know, it's one of those movies that is a pure comedy. It They are just scenes and they don't feel like there's a lot of weight on this movie. I, th- I think that's kind of the ding on this movie when it actually comes out in theaters. People are like, there's nothing here. There's nothing to grab onto. Where's the romance? And, you know, where is the song and dance numbers? And in my opinion... That's why it's one of my favorite Marx Brothers films, because it's it's so lean. It's only 68 minutes. It's the shortest of all the Marx Brothers films, and it's just rapid fire on jokes. I mean, I pulled this one scene right here at the top, right when Groucho Marx comes into uh, Fredonia. As chairwoman of the reception committee, I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? I've sponsored your appointment. Because I feel you are the most able statesman in all Fredonia. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Say, you cover a lot of ground yourself. You better beat it. I hear they're going to tear you down and put up an office building where you're standing. You can leave in a taxi. If you can't get a taxi, you can leave in a huff. If that's too soon, you can leave in a minute and a huff. You know you haven't stopped talking since I came here? You must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. I mean, the rapid-fire nature of jokes. And you just in it so quickly it, it it blows my mind it still makes me laugh well those jokes have like their own strange construction they're kind of held together like with magnets it's like here's yeah. a line and it snaps into this one and that one snaps into that one and by the end of the joke nothing at the last part of the line nothing at the punchline has anything to do with the joke as it has it started yeah it's it's so kind of perfectly constructed like a math problem because every response has to give you another setup for like three more jokes and it's a type of comedy that could not really have existed before this era. I mean, yeah, this is not our first black and white comedy. We had The General, but that was a silent film. We've right. got some chaplains coming up. Those are going to be silent films. This is a comedy that could only exist when people are allowed to talk, when people yeah. are allowed to make puns, and when people are allowed to like confuse words for each other. So this is a type of comedy that's very new for theaters. Well, let me ask you a question, Amy. I think people uh, can fall into two categories, and that is Marx Brothers or Three Stooges. What What do you fall into? I'm a little more Marx Brothers, personally, because to me, the difference between the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges is that they're both aggressive, but the Marx Brothers, to me, are, like, anarchic aggressive, and the Three Stooges are more, like, punch-you-in-the-face aggressive. Yeah. And I I tend more to just, like, burning down the entire building than, like, punching someone in the nose. I'm right there with you. I am a Marx Brothers fan. I never got why people love the Stooges. And I, I get it. It's it's more, I guess, slapstick. And this is more, you know, comedic verbally. Um, yeah, there's more rage in my impression of the Stooges kind of boiling out of each of the characters, especially Mo. whereas the Marx Brothers are relatively calm and people around them explode. Yeah, I mean, is it the difference between Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry? I mean, you know, one is about like, the art of language, it, it, it's kind of a, a smart comedy or a stupid comedy. And I don't think that there's anything better or worse, but I think, you know, one is appealing to one side of your brain and one is appealing to the other, you know, just. But at, at the same time, the physical gags in Marx Brothers films are epic. I mean, I was dying laughing. This movie holds a special place in my psyche because it's one of the first movies that my dad kind of shared with me like duck soup and i remember so many of these scenes i mean the lemonade vendor scene and the scene when they go in to meet with the uh, leader of sylvania like those scenes are so wonderfully orchestrated every beat like you said about the joke construction is there in the physical gags too but i guess 
The difference is their physical gags don't hurt people. They are just origamiing people to kind of fit in these positions. And you're like, how did they even do that? Yeah, they're like stealing hats, stealing hats, stealing another hat, stealing the same hat, stealing it back, stealing it back, and then setting it on fire. Yeah, it's like a magic trick that you see all the moves in. Yeah, or like watching pickpockets just be like, let me show you what I can do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie I watched with my dad, too. We have we have a dad connection yeah. on this. I mean, Amy, we are checking off a lot of connection boxes. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, this is also a movie that I think some of us might know it from references before we know the film, film, film. I did see this pretty young, but I am pretty sure I saw Big Business, the movie with Lily oh, Tomlin yeah. and Bette Midler before I saw Duck Soup. And they do that exact same mirror routine. Can we just talk about this mirror scene for a second? It is so impressive. Do you know that that scene only took... Two and a half hours to shoot. What? They just knocked it out. And I wondered, and this is me just hypothesizing. Please, someone tell me if you know the real reason. They take the sound out in that part of the film. Yeah, there's no sound. And and I was like, that's an odd choice. And I wonder if it was because they were actually on the day, like, literally talking it through, like, off camera so they could sync up perfectly. I had the exact same thought. And part of me was like, well, it's weird they didn't at least put music over it. Yeah. But yeah, there's no dialogue. So you imagine that somebody's like, put your head out, jump back, yep. put your head out. All right, he's going to spin around. Now you just stay put. And the staying put part is my favorite. Oh, it's it, it. this scene is great. And, and you know, you said big business. It's also been in I Love Lucy with Harpo Marx, Bugs Bunny, Mickey Mouse, uh, been on the X-Files with David Duchovny and Michael McKeon. Uh, it was on Benny Hill. It was in uh, Family Guy with Stewie and Hitler. Uh, interesting. And, you know, so it's like a, it's a classic, classic scene. I think that that's probably the one scene that everyone knows. And it was in a Simpsons. Ooh. Let's do it a little early. It was in a Simpsons, an episode called Donnie Fatso. And this is where Moe's lost trying to find his bar. He stumbles into a stage production of the Wizard of Oz, and he has a mirror scene with one of the flying monkeys. Whoa, it's a chimpanzee. And they're just doing it. <laughs> just picture a lot of <laughs> pantomime. <laughs> Maybe we should let these people enjoy their show. Yeah, like I said, some of my favorite scenes in this film involve Harpo and Chico, but you can't really pull the clips because it's visual and it's verbal, and you're, you'd only be like listening to one side of the conversation if you could be hearing it. You need to see it and see how it all kind of plays out. Yeah, because I'm a Harpo girl, man. If oh, I had to yeah. pick my favorite, I would go Harpo. And I mean, I, I am I am Chico all the way. Chico makes me laugh so hard. You're a Chico man. Oh, I love him. Why I, Chico? You know, he's the one who makes me laugh the hardest. I don't know if it feels like the biggest character because he's got this accent going on. I Whatever it is. I connected to him as a kid, and it's the person that still, like last night when I was watching this, just makes me laugh out loud. I just want to watch him all the time. I mean, what about Harpo kind of appeals to you? Uh, I think Harpo appeals to the part of me that, like, really loves Gene Wilder. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of like this curly hair, oh, yeah. strange, like, warped angel silent comedy routine. You know, I just went to Kazakhstan this summer, and I saw a really great clown act. Mm-hmm. And there was the best clown in the whole group was a lot like Harpo, you know, just this, like, force of destruction who runs around and kind of upends everything and ruins everything but looks so innocent while he's doing yeah. it. There's something about that, like, maniacal sense of humor that he channels. It's just, like, physical and crazy and expressive that I just fall for every single time. You know, you're right. 
it's it's a good lesson for comedy in a way because he looks so harmless, but what he is doing is so aggressive. Like he makes the most aggressive moves in this film. I mean, from putting his feet in the dude's lemonade for no reason. I mean, they're they're picking on this lemonade stand man for no reason. Everywhere they go, they are just, I mean, literally fucking with everyone, but to a point where you should feel like, oh, why are you picking on this guy? But it's in done in such love that you're like, I'm on their side. I'm on their side. I want to see this guy get more flustered and get more lemonade in the face. Well, it's weird because they're picking on two types of people, right? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, well, no. They're picking on everybody. Yeah. But when they're picking on the lemonade guy and then they're picking on Margaret Dumont, the voice that we yeah. heard in the clip you pulled out, they're picking on a dude who's just poor like them. Mm-hmm. And then they're picking on somebody very, 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 very wealthy. Right. So they're doing the whole range. It's not just like slobs versus snobs. Right. It's like slobs versus everybody. Yeah. And I think that that might be, you know, the story is, is that Duck Soup was the flop. It's not really a flop, no. but it wasn't a hit as much as people thought it would be a no, hit. No, I mean, as a matter of fact, this is the movie that made them lose their contract. I mean, yeah. it did not do well at all. And I wonder if part of that is because in 1933, when the depression is at its worst, like we were talking about in the King Kong episode, people are like, man, don't pick on a poor dude or like, just don't pick on people. Or they just wanted to hug. Well, it's interesting because MGM picked up their contract supposedly in a poker game with Chico. That was like what was on the table. Thalberg always considered Duck Soup to have a lot of problems. He's like, yes, you got these funny gags in it, but there's no story. There's nothing to root for. You can't root for the Marx Brothers. They're just a bunch of zany kooks. You got to put a love story in there and, and there'll be something to root for. You have to help the lovers get together. And I, and I would argue, like I said earlier, that's the stuff that I want to fast forward through every time I see another Marx Brothers movie. It's like, I don't care about that. And But maybe people at the time needed to have the song, the dance, the romance. It was a full four-quadrant film where this was a straight-up comedy. If you weren't on board for this, you wouldn't be on board for the movie. You know, it's like, whereas if it did have a few more dance numbers and a romance, you'd be like, oh, I like the romance part of it. You know, the comedy was whatever. Yeah, it's hard to imagine people buying a ticket to a Marx Brothers movie wanting to see more love in it. Yeah. Can you really believe these guys would ever love anything? I mean, through this entire movie, Groucho Marx is like, proposing to Margaret Dumont and then calling her fat and then proposing to her and then calling her fat. She's really not that fat anyways. No, I mean, but Margaret Dumont, while we're here, we just have to say is brilliant. And I know that it's been spoken of so many times, but I think Margaret Dumont is my first understanding of what a straight person is. And that's like a term in comedy where you're, you know, it's the person who's not aggressively getting the last, but reacting to being put upon by the comedian. I That, whatever, I'm sorry to over-explain straight person, but... She does such an amazing job at being a foil for them. And and I think when you talk about her, you have to say that she is part of the Marx Brothers, that she is a part of all the movies that really work. I don't know if it's her hoity-toitiness or her rich affectation that just give them like the perfect springboard. Yeah, because she was all those things in real life. Like, oh, really? She was an opera singer. And she had married super, super, super rich in, like, 1917, I think, before they started to make these movies together. But then her husband died. So that's why she had to go back to work. So she was sort of a a rich opera singer woman, but who also worked the stage and also had a sense of humor. And also totally got what was so funny about everything they were doing together. Because when she wasn't working with them, she was making other kind of crazy comedies. She was doing her own thing. Well, you see, that's very interesting because I always assumed that, too. But then I was uh, watching Groucho Marx on Dick Cavett. 
And this is what Groucho Marx had to say about Margaret Dumont. Did, did Margaret Dumont find you funny? She played the, as everybody knows, the dowager. No, she never lady. understood anything I did on the stage. Is that so? She didn't really. She thought I was serious. No I kidding. remember we had a line in Duck Soup, which was one of my favorite lines. There was a war at the finish of Duck Soup. I'm sure some of the people out here seen the picture. It's just like you if you applaud, you only waste time that I could use talking to you. <laughs> so keep quiet. <clears throat> just laugh hideously. <laughs> At any rate, we had a big shell come through a window. And yeah. I rushed over to the window and I pulled down the shade. Yeah. And her name was Otis, my name was Otis Driftwood in this picture. Yeah. And she says, Otis, what are you doing there? I says, I'm fighting for your honor, which is more than you ever did. <laughs> At the end of the scene, she came over to me. She says, what does that mean? <laughs> I says, if you don't know what it means, I can't explain it to you. So listening to that made me go, oh, I wonder if she's just... She knows she's in a comedy, but she's just reacting not as intentionally like I'm reacting to the funny, but she's just playing it real. Okay, but a couple of things. Yeah. Didn't he just get his character's name wrong in yes, that clip? Yes, he did, yes. Otis Driftwood. So, A, I don't trust anything he says. <laughs> B, what if Margaret Dumont was like this like double operative secret spy where she was like, I'm going to drive these guys nuts and act like I don't know what's happening. I will make the joke on them the entire time. I, well, look, I would love to, I would love that to be true because I mean, regardless of whatever she knew, if she wasn't on the joke or was not in on the joke, whatever that chemistry was, it really worked. And I think that's why you see a lot of really dramatic actors coming into comedy or comedians casting them in their projects because they will play with an intensity that you don't often find from comedians. And it's it's interesting. I'm working with Don Cheadle right now, who's this great actor who I'm such a fan of, his whole body of work, and he's doing something very comedic. And to watch him prep for it is very different than if I was doing something surrounded by people who you know probably exclusively work in comedy. It, it doesn't mean that he's less funny. I think he's sometimes even more funny than my comedian friends. It's just like a different mindset. I mean, I think that people think that Zeppo, you know, was their straight man, but Zeppo doesn't do anything half as funny as Margaret Dumont. No, although what they always say is that Zeppo was secretly the funniest Marx brother. Right. Which I'm still like, prove it? But they said that like Zeppo, because he was the youngest one, he grew up being able to imitate all his brothers. You know, the order of age, by the way. Right. Uh, Chico's the oldest, then Harpo, Groucho's the youngest of the three, which surprised me. Yeah, he always, always acts like the leader. Yeah. But yeah, it was him. Uh, then it was, I think that was the one that died. And then there was Gummo. And then there was Zeppo at the very, very, very end. Wow. He was like the baby. But yeah, apparently like he grew up just mimicking everybody. And they would talk about how he could sub in for anyone on their live shows. Yeah. But you don't see that here. I mean, well, he just kind of walks into the room and I forget he's even part of the family. I mean, he basically is getting the youngest child syndrome, which is like, you do what we tell you to do. And I think that just meant that he got to do none of the fun stuff, you know. And as a matter of fact, this is his last appearance as a Marx Brother because he was tired of being called the unfunny Marx Brothers. Like, I'm out. Bye. You know, I don't know if he added anything to their dynamic that you missed because then they just put in these like kind of stuffed shirt kind of, you know, white dudes to be with them who, you know, are the love interests and you know, they're neither here nor there. And I like Zeppo just fine, but there's nothing that I can say like, oh, that's a Zeppo moment, you know? Yeah, I mean, Zeppo even kind of gets like 
out straight men by Edgar Kennedy, by the guy who oh sells the lemonade. Yes. By the way, I think we would be remiss if we did not give a shout out to Raquel Torres as Vera Marcel as the Ooh, vamp in yeah. this movie. I liked her a lot, actually. She's very beautiful and she's kind of has more life than most of the beautiful women that are in Marx Brothers films. Yeah, she's so funny and kind of slinky and sinister. I just thought she was terrific. She kind of has a game. You know, she is evil or or has, you know, evil intentions. Whereas I think a lot of the times in later Marx Brothers movies, they're just eye candy, you know, for lack of a better term. Yeah, they are the punchline. Like, yeah. oh my goodness, what's happening? Yes. And she's like, da, 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 I'm in this slinky gold dress. What you gonna do about it? I kind of wanted to see more about them. I think there was a scripted romance uh, in the film between Zeppo and her that they they cut out. Uh, and they were going to have a, a love song called Keep On Doing What You're Doing. But all that stuff got cut out. Some interesting stuff about the script while we're there, too. Um, Duck Soup. What do you think that means? Like, uh, does that bring anything to your mind? Well, I was trying to think if I ever had duck soup, and I could only ever think of different Thai soups with duck in them. <laughs> well, duck soup apparently was slang at the time, meaning something that was easy to do or a gullible sucker. And Mark's. I'm got, sorry, could you use that in a sentence, please? Yeah, I would say, like, oh, that guy's a real duck soup. I don't know. That, I, that, that, it's that 1933. Is. <laughs> Things are happening. Uh, Groucho Marx offered the following explanation for the movie's title. He said, take two turkeys, one goose, four cabbages, but no duck, and mix them together. And after one taste, you'll duck soup the rest of your life. Well, I think that sounds good. Yeah, it does kind of, actually. <laughs> um, well, let me talk to you about something that I found really interesting on this take. First of all, I have to comment on it. Uh, this movie is an NRA film. Now, is that NRA as we know? That's not National Rifle Association. No, but I am very glad you asked because it is like an eagle holding, I think, what, a lightning bolt? Yeah. Because I I had to look this up when I first saw one of my favorite movies, uh, which I've talked about on here, a Busby Berkeley movie, Mm -hmm. which is from the same time period where he does a dance number that involves the NRA logo. But the NRA stands for the National Recovery Administration. This is what FDR was doing to get the country back together. So it was about the people who were like building roads and is about putting the money back into the economy. So interesting because I was like, oh, that's bizarre. Now, that was the first thing that kind of jumped out at me. But the second thing that really caught my interest was, oh, they don't have a writing credit. The four Marx Brothers don't have a writing credit on this film. And I was like, I always assumed they wrote their movies. Like, I just, I never thought that someone else was writing these movies. Yeah, because I... That's a weird one, right? Because their first movies that they did for Paramount were based on their own shows. Right. They're based on things they'd been taking around the road forever. So I don't know if these guys, if the like, there's like four accredited screenwriters. There's Burt Kalmar, Harry Ruby, Arthur Sheikman, Nat Perrin. Were they just sort of listening to the boys riff and typing it down? I mean, is- Or is it like they don't consider it writing because they would just write a plot and then the Marx Brothers would put in the bits that they've already done on stage. I know when I did Human Giant, which is a sketch show on MTV, there are certain rules that we had to get around and there's no writing credits on Human Giant. And I wondered if that was a similar situation here where it sort of is like, no, 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 you are the stars. So you will do like, of course, the mirror, the clown routine we're talking about, that was done on stage. Clearly that was before Duck Soup ever came into purview. And I wonder if they gave him a script and then the Marx Brothers kind of filled it in. I mean, one of the- Because the hat thing, that was also like a stage thing. Yeah, and that's why I think these bits kind of work so perfectly. I think one of the things you can always draw a line to in Marx Brothers films is they get progressively worse because they run out of material, essentially. Like, you know, like their best material is kind of in this era where they're like, oh, yeah, we hit this and we did this on stage. We did this. And at the end, they're like, oh, do this again. But I think a lot of the stuff was them 
adding on the day. Uh, for example, the script, uh, actually when first written, was 27 pages, which is amazing. Uh, they finally blew it up to 98 pages. You know, people say that this movie is the best Marx Brothers film because it's like this biting social satire, and they attribute it to this director, Leo McCary, who was Laurel and Hardy's supervisor. Um, Like, he worked with them, and he just had a good sense of pulling the social relevance out of the Marx Brothers and not just making it fully jokes. But he didn't even want to do this movie. Did you know that? No. He turned down this movie uh, he's like, I don't want to work with them. They're going to be nightmares. He's like, I don't like Duck Soup so much that I didn't want to even shoot this film. And the Marx Brothers wanted me so much to direct them in a film, and I refused. They got angry with the studio. They broke their contract and left. And so believing that I was secure, I accepted the renewal of my own contract with the studio. Soon, the Marx Brothers reconciled with Paramount, and I found myself in the process of directing the Marx Brothers. And the most surprising thing about the film was that I succeeded in not going crazy, for I did not want to work with them uh, they were completely mad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that makes me wonder if we really did get better art in the studio era because you were forced to make do with what you had. It's yeah. like going on the TV show Chopped or something where yeah. you're like, you get three Marx Brothers and Misery and Stress and Go. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because when you think about the Marx Brothers, you don't think about who directed it. And then that kind of brings me back to the whole idea of these people make a bigger difference than I ever acknowledge. I, I think of comedy a lot of the times as being like self-generated people. You know, it's like they write it, they direct it, they star in it. And here, you know, think about the effects that these writers and this director had on the final product is is pretty interesting to me. I mean, that makes me wonder who came up with one of my favorite visual gags. It's when, um, it's Harpo, right? It's showing off all his awesome tattoos. Yes. Which, by the way, is crazy back then. Like back then having tattoos, period, was super, super, super scandalous. It didn't really become more of a thing until like, People went to World War II again and came back with more tattoos. Like, right. tattoos were very, very scandalous in this time period. And then, uh, you know, he opens up his shirt and you have Groucho meowing at the, what is it? Oh, like, so basically, yeah, the, he, he shows Groucho, like, where he lives and it's a doghouse. And then Groucho kind of looks in to the doghouse and then a dog pops out of the tattoo, like a, a live action dog. And to, to think about this in 1933... That's a crazy special effect. It's awesome. And it's so visual and it's so nothing that could have happened on the stage. Yeah. That it makes me think, I wonder if that was like a Leo joke. I wonder if it was a Harry Ruby joke. Like, well. Maybe not one of them. That dog barking gag was actually the fix to a gag that they wouldn't actually let them shoot in the movie. Uh, so the original one was a little bit different, right? So it was a tattoo of an outhouse on Uh, Harpo's chest and Groucho slaps him on the back causing the door of the outhouse to swing open and then a little hand reaches out and then closes the door and so they thought that was way too dirty and scandalous so they replaced it with the dog gag which is I mean such a funny weird thing it wasn't like you saw someone's bare ass it was just knowing that someone was in the outhouse and I just love that he had an outhouse on his chest in the beginning and someone flagged that well we almost got a toilet like 30 years before Psycho (laughs) (laughs) so let's talk about the other stuff that could have really only happened now that we're firmly firmly into the sound era Mm -hmm. one of the things that I forgot about Duck Soup is that people just do burst into song like randomly they're like hello we're talking and then suddenly it's a musical like right here when Groucho Marx when his Rufus T. Firefly they're all waiting for him to enter the room as the new leader of Fredonia His Excellency is due to take his station beginning his new 
administration he'll make his appearance when the clock on the wall strikes ten when the clock on the wall strikes ten all you loyal ladies and you patriotic men let's sing the national anthem when the clock and this is where, if you're watching this movie with me, I will audibly groan because it's the parts I always forget about in the Marx Brothers, the singing and the harp playing. By the way, this is the only Marx Brothers film where Harpo does not play a harp solo. Uh, but there's a touch of harp. Oh, yeah, right. You're right. Yes. Right. <laughs> we should play the touch of All harp right. in a second. But that number, this number where like they're presenting Rufus, yeah. a couple of things. One... It seemed so much to me like pre-Wizard of Oz, right? Where she like enters Oz and everyone's like, and this is what we are and who we are. Yeah. And there's this weird visual thing. I don't know if it was just in the casting that they did, but you have all these soldiers march out and then you have all these ballerinas march out. And the ballerinas are so much shorter than the soldiers. It looks a little bit munchkin munch- <laughs> And I was like, where did they find the tiny, tiny ballerinas yeah. or what is happening here? It feels to me that there was a checklist that they had to cross off. And it's like, all right, we'll get the dancers in here. We'll do this thing. Because there are these big scenes. And we talked about the scene at the end, all God's children got guns. Like, there are these big dance numbers. And they seemingly are not necessary, but they just are happening. It's like... You got to You got to put it in. You just got to put it in. That was like the, you know, just, it was just like, a, a, you know, it was just kind of a sign to you. If you're going to make a movie, you got to have a couple of these things. Oh well, yeah, man. It's the new hit thing, man. Imagine <laughs> if King Kong had a dance number. I would have liked it. Yeah. It'd be like young Frankensteining it up. <laughs> <laughs> but let me ask you this. What do you think of Rufus T. Firefly as a leader? Well, it's difficult to kind of think of him as a leader because Rufus is a great indictment of what we assume politicians to be, right? You know, giving jobs to his friends, you know, lying, cheating, you know, philandering, all this, you know, sort of stuff that has not changed since, you know, 1933. Or probably before. (laughs) Or before, but, uh, you know, he's firing at his own men at a certain sequence and more concerned about giving himself a medal. But he seems to be effective because he, you know, he wins the war at the end. I mean, or at least that's what we understand it to happen. When he announces his policies, it sounds basically like he's trying to form Singapore. Here, let's listen to his laws. For our information, just for illustration, tell us how you intend to run the nation. These are the laws of my administration. No one's allowed to smoke or tell a dirty joke, and whistling is forbidden. We're not allowed to tell a dirty joke. If chewing gum is chewed, the chewer is pursued, and in the who's cow hidden. If we choose to chew, we'll be pursued. If any form of pleasure is exhibited, report to me and it will be prohibited. I'll put my foot down, so shall it be. This is the land of the free. Here he is, the figure of anarchy coming in and being like, nobody has any fun or any freedom. Right. I... I guess it just went right over my head. I glazed over, and I, I feel bad for for being this type of a viewer, but I glazed over, and now listening to him, I'm like, this is, I didn't realize there were, like, jokes or points of view in these actual songs. <laughs> I didn't realize, so if I sing anything to you, you just won't even hear what I'm saying? I just think, I feel like it's such fluff in a Marx Brothers movie. Like, look, 
I love a musical. I will go see musicals. I will listen to the musical soundtrack when I get home from seeing it. I, I'm all on board. But on these, I'm like, no, thank you. Not interested. Hey, Paul, why don't you buy me a pizza sometime? Is this subliminally getting to you? I have not heard a word that you said, but I am <laughs> hungry for pizza. Amy, uh, can I ask you a question? Okay. What do you think of Groucho Marx as an actor? He is so in control. He's sort of like if you were a dancer, but just with your mouth. It's like if Fred Astaire had to dance with his tongue. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because in my mind, it was the first time I looked at him and was like thinking about this. I'm like, I think he's a mediocre actor and a great performer, right? Because the style and the substance is all there, but he's not really interacting with anyone. He is performing around people or people are performing around him. He's not connecting. Whereas I think Harpo and Chico both are connecting and they're better actors. Oh, that's interesting. I was just reading this interview with Roger Ebert where mm-hmm. he said kind of the same thing. Oh, really? Yeah, he had to interview Groucho Marx a couple of times right before he died in the early right. 70s. And he said that when you talk to Groucho Marx, you're aware that he's not completely in the room with you. He's mm-hmm. figuring out how to win the conversation, how to move the, the pieces around. Yeah. And that he never breaks character. That with Groucho Marx, there is no difference between his public and private self. And I think you feel that in the film because, like I said, one of my favorite scenes in this film, and, and I would say in the history of film, is when Harpo and Chico are introduced as the spies and they come in. That scene, I feel like, is so much funnier than the first scene of Groucho coming in. They're both very funny scenes, undeniably hilarious scenes, but I find so much joy in watching Harpo and Chico because I feel like they're actually performing the art of acting in a film. Do you think it's possible that when Groucho Marx does his, like, besting things, like when he's quipping around on Dumont, you almost get the sense that he's not listening to anything she has to say ever? Whereas right. Chico, well, here, let's actually listen to like a thing where Chico goes after the ambassador. And I want to listen to this now, like really closely and think like, is he responding to what he's saying for real? Now, Chicolini, I want a full detailed report of your investigation. All right, I tell you. Monday, we watch the Firefly's house, but he no come out. He wasn't home. Tuesday, we go to the ball game, but he fool us. He no show up. Wednesday, he go to the ball game and we fool him. We no show up. Thursday was a doubleheader. Nobody show up. Friday, it rained all day. There was no ball game. So we stayed home. We listened to her over the radio. Then you didn't shadow Firefly. Oh, sure, we shadow Fire. We shadow him all day. But what day was that? Saturday. (laughs) It's some joke, eh, boss? I think what I love there is he is telling that story. I feel like you feel he's telling that story. And when he's making a joke, he's making a joke. Groucho never comments that he's making a joke. He is just responding. And, And I feel like there's that's the playfulness that... I don't know, makes it feel like that's a real scene to me. I know it's an insane scene, but it speaks to who they are as characters in my mind. Yeah, you're making me have this image in my head where it's like Groucho Marx is the giant boulder in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Just like, I'm rolling into a scene. Watch out. Here I come. And Chico is more like, I'm a cat playing with a mouse. You're not getting anywhere. I control this. Yeah. I, I like it, and I like that song, and I just heard every part of it. So look at that. You're, you're breaking me of my of my bad habits. Um, in, and I think part of that is their personality. You talked about how Groucho is always in character, and I think his character was to be smarter than everyone in the room and win that conversation, whereas I believe that Harpo and Chico 
enjoyed people and getting a reaction out of people. There's a story on set. The two writers, Harry Ruby and Bert uh, Kalmar, were standing on the set watching the scene kind of go, you know, happen. And an extra comes up to them and goes, oh, I don't know who wrote this stuff, but they ought to be arrested. And they should be in a different business. Now, these screenwriters, they get so pissed off. They're just like, well, what, what's going on? And Kalner, who's a, a rational guy, is like, I am going to hit this guy. And eventually, they're informed that Chico had paid the extra to say that to him just to get the screenwriters like riled up just for the fun of it. And, and, and I think that's the difference in their personality. It's like that kind of like, they're just having fun with people. And I don't think that... I don't think that Groucho would do that. Like, it doesn't feel like that's a Groucho thing. I feel like Groucho would be just kind of not associating. He's not a man of the people. He is a man commenting on the people. I mean, what you're kind of describing is the ability to empathize, right? Yeah. That Chico, not that he's kinder because of it, but he can get into somebody's head and be like, I know what will mess with them in particular. I have thought yeah. about this. And Where, it's playful. Uh, yeah. it's like, it, but I think play is with someone else. Right. There's like a, you have to have someone else to play with, I think. Here, this scene is from when Chicolini, when Chico is on trial for being a spy and he's being prosecuted by a judge and also Groucho Marx. Do anyone here to defend you? It's no use. I even offered to pay as high as $18, but I know could I get somebody to defend me. My friends, this man's case moves me deeply. Look at Chicolini. He sits there alone. An abject figure. I abject. I say, look at Ciccolini. He sits there alone, a pitiable object. Let's see you get out of that one. Surrounded by a sea of unfriendly faces. Ciccolini, give me a number from one to 10. 11. Right. Now I ask you one. What is it has a trunk but no key, weighs 2,000 pounds and lives in a circus? That's irrelevant. Irrelevant? Hey, that's the answer. There's a whole lot of relevance in the circus. That sort of testimony we can eliminate. That's a fine, I'll take some. You'll take what? A lemonade. A nice cold glass of lemonade. Hey, boss, I'm going to good. <laughs> yeah. Gentlemen, Ciccolini here may talk like an idiot and look like an idiot, but don't let that fool you. He really is an idiot. I implore you. Send him back to his father and brothers who are waiting for him with open arms in the penitentiary. I suggest that we give him 10 years in Leavenworth or 11 years in Twelveworth. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take five and 10 in Woolworth. And, and, and you see, I think that actually articulates exactly what we're saying. There is Groucho performing, almost doing a stand-up routine. He's the lawyer. He's driving the case forward. He's talking to the crowd at large. And, and I mean, look, there's a scene in this film where Groucho even turns right down the lens of the camera and, and talks to the audience. Right in the beginning when Margaret Dumont says, like, you know, uh, you'll fill in for my husband. He's like, oh, look at this. You know, uh, I'm not going to even do <laughs> to attempt to do it with Groucho. But in that scene, I think Chico is really, like, you feel him like explaining himself and he's pulling off these jokes that I think only he can do because he's playing the character of being dumb so kind of effortlessly. Well, yeah, and his jokes in that whole scene and in so much of the movie are based in him trying to communicate with people and not understanding them. Yes. But they're about him failing to connect, but yes. trying to connect. Yes, you feel like a sympathy for him. Yeah, he's like, mice, maestro, I don't know. Everything's like crazy with him. And I think that's how they each have their superpower. Like, they don't need to be all great actors. Or you're almost getting three types of distinct comedy. You're getting character-based comedy. You're getting, like, a stand-up style of comedy. And then you're getting this physical Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin level of comedy. And in a way, I've never seen a comedy movie break down to those 
three types in one film. It's like each one is responsible for a different kind of laugh. That's really, 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 really true. I love that. I hadn't really thought of that. Like, I was thinking before we got here about how each one of them, about how Groucho Harpo and Chico, they all look so dramatically different. They all look like silent film comedians. Right. I mean, especially Groucho with, like, the heavy, yeah. heavy mustache and the heavy, heavy eyebrows. Um, but they all look so visually distinct for comedy that is often just, like, based on wordplay. Yeah. But, you know, I hear to that kind of point, like, I hear that if you took off all of their wigs and all of their makeup, I think they all wore toupees. I think they were all going bald by this point. Amazing. That they actually looked alike, which kind of blows my mind. Well, when they do the disguise scene, when each of them dresses up like Groucho, they look identical. That's how you know that they are fully brothers. I mean, there is... You can't tell them apart in that. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, because I think when I was a kid, I didn't really think they were brothers. I thought they right. were pretending to be brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was just like, how could these be brothers? That guy's blonde. I right. mean, I'm very naive about wigs. No, but I mean, look, the same way. I think, you know, as a kid, like, you think that that's the, the moniker of them. You know, that that's their, their gimmick, you know? Yeah, it's like us. We're like the... Sheer siblings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this as we keep on talking about it. And, it, you know, I think there's a reason why certain comedians really respond to Groucho. You know, it, was it in um, Hannah and her sisters, like where Woody Allen, like, goes and sees Duck Soup and kind of has this revelation about his life. He's about to commit suicide and he changes everything by seeing, like, Groucho. And I feel like Woody Allen and Groucho have uh, a very similar you know, take on how they perform. And I think Chris Rock could be put in that, the way that Chris Rock kind of acts in films. It's it's kind of outside of it. You know, it's... The and, need to win. I think yeah. when I think of Woody Allen and his scenes, I think of somebody who has to win, who has to at least let the audience know he's smarter than them. Yeah. Or that he deserved to win even if he loses. Interesting. Yeah, he wants to be the smartest person in the room. And I think that that's a style of a stand-up who transitions into an actor. And I think then there's comedians who are more performers who are doing these great characters. And and whether or not we're talking about that silently like Harpo, and I think you can draw that connection to, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen, or I think you could draw that to Chico. You know, it's like there's a lot of that, too, where you can find a character, Melissa McCarthy, where it's like, once they're in that character, everything is through that character's voice and everything is funny and they can make something on the page so much better because it's coming out of that character's voice. What would it look like if we all listened more? Think about it. If we just shut our mouth and listened for a change, we would be growing, we'd be learning, we'd be empathizing. And that's what Audible wants us to do because when you're listening to things, you're actually growing. And audiobooks, they motivate us, they inspire us, they even bring us closer together. And there's no better place to listen than Audible because now Audible members are getting more and more content. I'm talking about audio fitness programs, audio books, Audible originals, and more. They have the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. And now with Audible originals, the selection has even gotten more custom with content made just for members. I mean, every month, Audible members get one credit good for any audiobook. That's simple, okay? Plus, two Audible originals from a changing selection that they can't get anywhere else. You can't get this. This is behind a special Audible wall here, okay? You get access to audio fitness, health workouts created exclusively for Audible, plus your book's They're there for you to keep forever. So with Audible, you can go back and re-listen at any time, even if you cancel your membership. You don't like your audiobook? Exchange it. No questions asked. They're cool. Audible is the best. I've been listening to Audible for a long, long time. 
I love a lot of their Audible originals. Uh, that's when I first started listening to Michael Ian Black's show, uh, where he interviews really amazing people. I also love to read on my Kindle and then go to my Audible account to kind of get this uh, back and forth flow. I'm actually listening right now to Red Rising, which is a fantasy sci-fi book that people told me I should listen to and get into, and I just didn't have time to pick it up. I downloaded it, and I'm loving it. Uh, It's written by Pierce Brown, and it's narrated by Tim Gerard Reynolds. It's really, really good. Start your Audible trial today, and your first audiobook is free. That's right. Go to audible.com slash unspooled or text unspooled to 500500. That's 500500. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash unspooled or text unspooled to 500500. You can do it with audiobooks. Believe me, I believe in you listening to me about audible. So Amy, the effects of Duck Soup, I think really are far reaching. And especially in the world of comedy, there's so many huge, huge fans. And we are lucky enough to have one of those fans with us today. Uh, You might know him as the host of his hilarious late night talk show. He also is the host of a brand new podcast here on Earwolf called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, uh, which is going to be premiering November 19th. Let's welcome Conan O'Brien. Okay, Conan, welcome to the studio. And first, Paul and I had to settle this really early on at the beginning of this episode. Are you a Marx Brothers person or are you a Three Stooges person? I don't think that should be an either or. Really? I okay. really, I really okay. don't. I think that both the Three Stooges and the Marx Brothers are anarchists. Okay. It really is go for the jugular uh, anarchy and um, a kind of you know really delightful madness. I think the division sometimes would actually be more between comedians who are pure anarchists and going for the laugh and comedians who are playing on your sentiment. That's what I think the division is. And I think the more of the division is, are you a Marx Brothers person or are you a Charlie Chaplin person? Oh, okay. I like that. To me, that is is more of the distinction. Look, I think they both have this, uh, you know, this longevity. Like people are still adamant fans of both. And this movie, Duck Soup, is very high on the AFI list. And I, we just rewatched it, and it, it still holds up as a piece of, like, comedy that you can laugh at. It doesn't feel dated in any way. What, what's your connection to this movie? I think this is the Marx Brothers' best movie. I also think that one of the things that makes it last is that on the surface, and especially in today's environment, a lot of people would say, oh, this is a movie about politics, and, and today, because everyone's so hyped up about politics, I, I happen to think that if you were reading a review in, in like the New York Times yeah. or the Washington Post, whatever, of this movie, if it came out today, they would say, this really satirizes government. Yes. This really satirizes, and this really takes down the right. And at the time, Hitler was very much on the rise uh, in Europe. Right. And a lot of people thought that this movie was somehow a take on dictators and nationalism and, you know, and it was taking them down. Someone said that to Groucho Marx later on. Yeah. He said, what a brilliant takedown of him. Groucho Marx said, what are you talking about? We were four Jews trying to get a laugh. To me, that is what makes this movie work. The comedy uh, is 
just brilliantly go for the jugular. They don't waste any time on exposition. And it is the Marx Brothers being as funny as they can possibly be. If you're trying to look at it through a political lens, I think you're missing the point. It's so funny that people read whatever they want into comedy. And I think it seems like, can't comedy just be comedy? Yes, that's kind of... If I were a preacher today, that would be what I would be preaching. I would right. be trying to preach to people that let comedy be comedy because I think there's such a desire for everybody to see things through the lens of what we're going through in this country and political humor and uh, takedowns. Somebody took down Trump last night on their late right. night show or, or a comedian took down Mitch McConnell. Right. And I, I, what I love about this movie is in a modern comedy – people would be trying to, executives would be trying to answer the question, Fredonia needs a new leader. And it'd be great and really funny if Groucho Marx became the new leader of Fredonia. So we need to come up with the plot device by which Groucho Marx, who's clearly insane and is the right. last person in the world who should be uh, running a country, what's the plot device? This movie says... Fuck that. Yeah. What do you mean? No. The movie starts with, Fredonia needs a new leader. Here he is. It's Groucho Marx. Yeah. No explanation necessary. Well, you're talking about studio executives like they have more sense than members of Congress. Yeah. And yeah. also, I mean, Irving Thalberg would have done that if they had made this a couple years later. He would have been like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's give you a tragic backstory where like, you well, wanted to be present when you were a baby and somebody stepped on you. There's also, uh, there's the dance number song and dance number at the end uh, <laughs> of the movie. It's, it's pure insanity. It's oh, pure yeah. insanity. It, they're all going to war. And it's a moment of pure madness. And I still think one of the best comedic representations ever filmed of just joyous lunacy. Joyous lunacy that's completely beside the point uh, I don't know, yeah. to me, it's beautiful. Well, and you know what I think is so interesting is that Groucho Marx is actually an okay dancer. Like, I think you mm -hmm. have to be a good dancer to dance as badly as he does. Mm -hmm. And I really admire people who have that much physical control over his body. It's like a Steve Martin kind of gift. Like, yep. Steve Martin can also really dance when he wants to. Yeah. Fatty Arbuckle could dance when he wanted to. Well, I feel like these people are real performers. They, they you know, they cut their teeth on the stage. Like, there was no only being one talent in a way. It's so interesting to see a comedy made in the 1930s still be uh, accessible. And I feel like when you're, we were talking a little bit before about when you're being so political, that stuff will fade away so quickly because it's so pointed. It's so topical. If it's too specifically political, I, I think that's one of the reasons why Will Rogers can get, be lost to people now. Yeah. You know, a lot of his routine, a lot of his commentary was so specifically about what was happening in that moment. It's very hard for us to sink our teeth into it now. But- Marx Brothers, you know, if you're watching this movie, the context of it's the late 30s or the early 40s, war is looming, is this a comment? It's, it's irrelevant. Yeah. But I, oh, I would say W.C. Fields is another comedian of that era who, in my opinion, holds up brilliantly because it's just funny. It's, right. It's so much of it is just funny and his, he's so not needy. He's so yeah. self-contained. Yeah. Well, because like the human nature of despotism is kind of universal. I mean, right. I bet like the great despots, the horrible Egyptian rulers or something of 2000 years ago had the exact same problems. Mm -hmm. Like you could have done the same comedy about them, which, yeah, it, you know, I mean, that makes me wonder, like, 
when you're talking all the time and there's like a pressure to talk about and make jokes about the news, is there a little bit of you that's like, oh, I wish I could just step back and talk about these issues in a larger sense? Uh, yeah. Oh, for me, God, yes. Um, I have these days, these days I find it to be not a source of comedic inspiration to me. I don't, you know, I, I don't find the current administration to be a source of comedic inspiration. That's never the kind of comedy that I've loved doing. I mean, your show always, I think, stood out from everybody else's because the comedy was so kind of separate from it, from the day to day. It was right. just comedic. I want it to be just. I've always wanted it to be uh, being interrupted by someone in the audience uh, right. who's a really good, you know, played by Amy Poehler, or a really good actor who's pretending to be my sister and we play out a family drama. I've always far preferred that to let's take down the latest uh, bill that was just passed in Congress. I've, I've never, I think also it's so ubiquitous now. There are so many shows that do it. There's so many places that do it that it's, I'm one of six kids. Uh, I've never wanted to be doing what everyone else is doing. Yeah. I don't, it's not fun to me. So I would rather, a lot of people are doing it really brilliantly right now and I'd, I'd rather leave it to them and uh, find a way to do something that uh, it's like why I like why I love to do travel shows so much is right. go to Japan, go to Korea, go to Israel, go places where I'm a complete fish out of water and play that kind of fish out of water comedy that has been around for two thousand years. What would you say is your your top three Marx Brothers movies? Wow, that's a good question. Well, Duck Soup's my all time right. favorite. Horse Feathers, I haven't seen it in a long time. That one always kind of is high for me, too. I Horse like- Feathers is up there. And then I haven't seen Night at the Opera in a, in a little while, but I have to see it again. Is it's, that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's probably the, the three that have the most solid, you know, beginning, middle, and end kind of movies. And there's other ones, like when they go west and stuff, it's, oh, there's a, that's a funny scene or that's a thing. You're, you're picking, yeah, you're picking pieces of meat out of the stew. Yeah. But it's not, you're not biting into a big sirloin. Yeah. I mean, you don't know me at all. And you have hung out with Paul a little bit. Can you guess which Marx brother is our Marx brother? And I'm also curious if which one is yours. Uh, wow, that's tough. I have to say for all of my childhood and for a long time, it was Harpo just because I adored him as yeah. a kid. And I, I do think he's a genius. I think he's an absolute genius. Um, as I got older, I started to see how much everybody's doing Groucho. You start to see the influences. So walk this way, if I could walk that way. I mean, just that, right. yeah. that fast talking, wise guy, uh, uh, the way he walks into a room, bent over. I don't know. He's a completely original character to me, and I think he's completely influenced everybody. I yeah. can't boil it down to one. And you know what's cool? you know what's really interesting too is uh, Chico is a sleeper because earlier in my life I didn't uh, Chico of the three of them I would say was the least potent to me, and I've only come to appreciate him more. Really, and more. I really love I really love Chico. That's uh, that's the one that is my favorite. Yeah, and I'm a Harpo girl, and I want to narrate for people who. Couldn't see because this is a podcast. You did a very good Groucho eyebrow wiggle just then when you were talking about. I've it. had a lot of work done. <laughs> <laughs> no, Chico to me makes me laugh because I feel like he's such a defined. I mean, they are all defined characters, but yeah. I just think he can really act this this persona in a way that makes me laugh so hard, and he, especially Duck Soup. He keeps it moving. The more you learn about comedy, the more you see how 
beautifully these three people work off of each other and how when one of them has the you know alpha position how the other one's feeding yeah or or, or one of the others and uh you know these these guys grew up together right. and then you think about it uh they're playing vaudeville and they're playing non-stop i mean yeah and that's an education that you know now we we live in this youtube world where everybody's getting experience and no one's getting experience at the well, same time. It's like, I mean, I was lucky enough to perform for many years and be in New York and kind of get that. And, and that you just learn about yourself. You learn how to, you make mistakes. I think that's the thing too. It's like the benefit of not having things recorded all the time. And then you just get better simply, I don't know if it's listening to the audience, but just by experimentation. Yeah. yeah and you make public mistakes, right? Like you make, like people yeah. applaud or don't applaud. People clap or don't clap, you but know, it, right away whether or not it worked. Whereas on, if you're like a Vine star, yeah, you yeah. only get hits. Like you don't really know yes. in real time what failed. So on every episode of the show, we see if the Simpsons have made a reference to one of the movies that we are talking about, and they have pretty much every one of the movies except for African Queen. Is that something that's you're conscious of when you were in the writers' room? I know it's many, many years ago, but was that something you were aware of? It's kind of, I think, second nature for any Simpsons writer to be regurgitating the pop culture that we grew up with. Yeah. So uh, one of the episodes I wrote, the uh, act one is a Music Man parody. Act two and act three uh, became uh, an Irwin Allen disaster movie parody. And so it was uh, the, uh, the monorail episode uh, where the town gets a monorail and first they get sold the monorail by a guy who's, yeah, I, I completely did a version with a friend of mine, Jeff Martin, who's also a Simpsons writer, we wrote a version of the Trouble Song that was all this guy convincing, right. played by Phil Hartman, the town to buy a monorail. And then once they buy the monorail and install it, it becomes a parody of the Irwin Allen movies I grew up with, like Towering Inferno and right. Poseidon Adventure, where this is perfect. It is man's gleaming, nothing can go wrong, and all the celebrities are getting on board, and then, oh no, Something right. went wrong and it's a terrible disaster. Well, The Simpsons has been doing that almost. You can see there might be six or seven mini parodies right. in most episodes. What's interesting to me is a year ago, my son, who's 12, started watching The Simpsons and you can binge watch them and he's allowed to watch on the weekends okay. for a certain amount of time. So he's been absorbing The Simpsons and at the same time, starting about... Around nine months ago, I started showing him classic movies that I thought he should see. What's interesting is I showed him The Godfather and he said, oh, right, so that's what that Simpsons episode right. meant. And then I'll show him the movie The Untouchables and yeah. he'll see the baby carriage going down the stairs and he'll say, oh yeah, that's what that meant in The Simpsons. <laughs> he's doing it backwards. Yeah, he's seeing it like, yeah, like it's like he's putting it all together at the end of an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Like, yeah, you know, he's, oh. he is, and I think a lot of people in this younger generation, yeah. a lot of kids are gonna see the parodies first. Then they're gonna see Citizen Kane. Yeah. Then they're gonna see um, African Queen or any yeah. famous movie or Casablanca. They saw Homer say, play it again, Sam, but they didn't know what it meant. And it, it gives you like two levels of enjoyment because I think like we're talking about the Marx Brothers, it kind of exists. Like the Simpsons, you can enjoy it without it being purely just a reference, not just a cut to a joke. It's seated within the story and the character. So while it is a reference, it also feels kind of organic to the it's world. It's a little like uh, a show that did it brilliantly was the 
Batman series in the 60s with Adam oh, West. Oh, yeah. You can watch it. They have all these jokes in there that I only understood as an adult. The mayor is not called Mayor Lindsay. His name's Mayor Linseed. All these jokes about right. bad government. There's all kinds of stuff in there. But as a kid, it, it wasn't a speed bump for me at all. Right. I just loved it. That was the mayor. But it's all seeded in there organically. Well, this has been great talking to you about the Mark Brothers. Thank you so much for giving us this time. Yeah, I, I hope people go out and uh, watch them. I mean, it's it's just God. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I showed my four-year-old just like two scenes from Duck Soup, and it was so fun to watch him watch Harpo because I feel like that's yep. his entry point. He's and he's it, the entry drug. Yeah, entry, and, yeah, he's the gateway drug, and he was laughing hilariously, just like the whole scene where they're taking the hats and lighting it on fire. It's mm-hmm. like it. It, it's the most insane thing he's ever seen, you know? And this is a kid who watches, like, Super Wings, which is one of the worst shows I've ever seen on TV about, like, talking planes that they clearly just dub for every different country that they go to. So, I executive produced that show. Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. Really good show, really. <laughs> Kidding. But, uh, I don't. But thanks so much. This week, Earwolf is transforming into something spooky, scary. It's called Fearwolf. That's right, Fearwolf is coming to haunt your precious ears with spooky episodes and hair-raising special guests of all your favorite shows. Right here on Unspooled, you can listen to Amy and Paul Shear break down one of the most influential horror films of all time, Psycho. And on Who Charted? It should be called Boo Charted because Howard Kramer and guest Tiff Stevenson count down the top Halloween songs and movies. But that's not all. Off Book is offering up a Halloween musical spooktacular. And on Womp It Up, the city of Marina del Rey gets a little bit spookier when a local mystic marionetta Pampanaya drops by to reveal the future and then hear her true form. That's right. Head over to Stitcher Premium, or should I say... Stitcher Screamium to get some couples costume tips from Sean and Hayes on the Hollywood Handbook Pro version. So do not miss your favorite Fearwolf shows this week on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. A big thanks to Conan O'Brien for sitting down and talking Duck Soup with us. His brand new podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, uh, premieres Monday, November 19th. Guests include Will Ferrell, Wanda Sykes, Mark Marin, Ron Funches, Dax Shepard, Kristen Bell, Nick Offerman, Megan Mullally, and Bill Burr. It's going to be great. It's Conan, unfiltered, and without any time limits to talk about whatever he wants. So uh, if you enjoyed him right here, I think you're going to really love this podcast. You know, when Conan was talking about that end number, it's really interesting because it seems like part of that number was improvised. There's a, a song kind of at the end, All God's Children Got Guns. They got guns, we got guns, all God's children got guns, we gonna walk all And that was apparently improvised on the set by Groucho because actually based on this kind of older uh Spiritual song, I Got Shoes. So I thought that was really interesting that he just improvised this big number. It's not in the script, and it seems to be something that he just kind of came up with on the day, and this is according to their biographer, uh, Joe Adamson, just said that that's was something that Groucho wanted to do. So I feel like the movie is them, but they're not being credited for what they actually added. 
I mean, how long until Sasha Baron Cohen sings All God's Children Got Guns in disguise to somebody in the NRA and convinces them to make it their theme song, the other NRA? <laughs> I mean, also, I was thinking a lot about um, Sasha Baron Cohen watching Duck Soup because I was trying to think, like, who picked up this mantle and ran with it? Mm-hmm. it I think of him and I think of Jim Carrey for some reason. Interesting. You know, I definitely got, like, a strong sense of – Sasha Baron Cohen watching this too. And I didn't really put it together until now. And I think it's that playful anarchy. And I think that that you see that, especially in a character like Borat, who's so sweet, so lovely, but is turning the screws on people in such an intense way. And I think he has that playful childlike mentality. So you never really feel bad for the people that he is going after, you know, even though he's going after some people that really deserve it and some people that don't deserve it so much. You're always on his side. I wonder if Bora is who Harpo would be if Harpo could talk. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, there's a similarity there 100%. Like, what is the history of improv in this time? Were, were people always doing it before then? Like, do they, do you count them as improv? Comedians? You know, I think that you can draw a lot of lines to like Viola Spolin uh, comes up with these ideas of these theater games that help people, you know, you can explore character and space. And then improvisation in the 60s is really getting to where we understand improv now where we're using it to create theater. You know, before it was much more in the art of like Commedia dell'arte where you're wearing a mask and now I'm going to act like this character, you know, very basic, big ideas. But you know, improv as comedy is in the 60s, and that's kind of with the compass players. And then you're getting Del Close, who's creating that, that 70s version of improv, which is much more of your original, like, cast of SNL. And then it kind of evolves and evolves and evolves. And I think back here probably was just, here are funny people that are writing bits, playing with each other, finding something on stage. S- something works, they keep it. Something doesn't work, they throw it away. You know, so I think it's at this point, it's vaudeville is improv in the sense that the audience is telling you what's working and you refine a show based on what's working, what's not. And I think that that's more probably akin to stand up, you know, but at the same time, we have the biographer of the Marx Brothers saying like, no, here's Groucho going, I have an idea. Let's just shoot this and let's go this way. You know, so I don't think they're calling it improv. I think they're just naturally writing on their feet, which is, you know, I think improv has always been around. I think when it's more structured in a theater environment is when you're seeing it in the 60s. That's all. I mean, I wonder, because the fortunes of Duck Soup kind of rise and fall with the 60s. You know, this comes out in the 30s. It does all right. It's kind of like pushed away for a bit. They have much bigger hits after this. Again, they had bigger hits before. They got bigger hits after. Duck Soup is sort of like this, oh, little kid brother one that's like the Zeppo of their legacy. And then it resurfaces in the 60s. Like, it kind of gets brought back by, like, the chaotic hippies who are mad that we're going into Vietnam and like these young angry kids are sort of like this movie's terrific wow. and they bring it back. I think if it weren't for them, we'd probably have another one maybe as the second Marx Brothers on the list. You know, one of the things I realized in doing my research, too, is this movie was put into the Library of Congress. Guess in what year? I don't know. What year? 1990. Wow. And I believe this is higher than Night at the Opera. And I think it's more deserved of this spot because it is the most pure Marx Brothers film. I, 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 these scenes are classics. And, and it, I think at 68 Minutes is kind of there in the forefront of what my biggest belief in comedy is. Shorter is better. No one leaves going, I wish it was longer in um, comedy. Ben Hur's a laugh right, man. <laughs> but I wonder if part of why Duck Soup feels like it really connects today is because it feels like we're in another moment like that. Mm. where we don't trust our leaders, where we think our leaders are buffoons, where I'm really freaked out about being led into a really stupid war. Right. 
this movie felt really relevant to me again when you have even even here at the beginning miss teasdale making this deal with the government i am sorry but i'm inclined to agree with the people the government has been mismanaged what i will lend the money but only on condition that his excellency withdraw and place the government in new hands you asked me to give up my office yes your excellency in a crisis like this i feel fredonia needs a new leader a progressive, fearless fighter, a man like Rufus T. Firefly. A Rufus T. Firefly? I will lend the money to Fredonia only if Firefly is appointed leader. I mean, what's on my mind so much is having way too much money involved in politics, is in how, like, the richest people of the land can, like, pull strings and get people elected. And so having this character do that in the 30s, like, when this movie opened, I was like, ha, ah, oh, here right. we go. Well, maybe the idea is... In the 30s, it was too smart for the room. Not to bring up a kind of a lame comparison, but like when Marty McFly plays Johnny B. Good for the you know the high school dance at the end, everyone stands there after they watch him kind of like jam out on the guitar because they weren't ready for it yet. You know, and he's like, "But your kids will love it." Uh, and that's kind of what I feel like was happening here. Like we were just going into the idea of what World War II was going to be in the in the countries in this weird spot. Now we are more aware culturally. It will never, we'll never go back. And I think you can watch this movie the same way you can watch Lord of the Rings and see all the comparisons between, you know, industrialization and, and war coming and, you know, all this sort of stuff. You're always gonna be able to read into it. But as a culture, we're more open to these kind of stories now. We're not as naive to it. Well, apparently like Mussolini watched Duck Soup and he was like, hey, this is about me. And he's so funny. It. I know. <laughs> Which makes me wonder... You know, in, in scenes like when the war actually starts and you have Groucho Marx just changing costumes like left and right, being mm-hmm. like Civil War, being Teddy Roosevelt, being like in a giant British hat, being in a Boy Scout uniform, being like Davy Crockett. I mean, when I was watching that, I was like wondering, is this a commentary on how war is always the same no matter what the uniforms are? Or is it just a joke? Is it just a visual gag? It is whatever you want it to be, you know? And, and Oh, so war <laughs> No, but like... I think maybe that's maybe that's Leo McCary coming in and saying, let's do it like this. And that's our comment on it. And it works on both levels, you know, because this movie is wall to wall jokes. And some are the most base, like when he's in bed um, eating crackers in bed, it's like they don't have him just in bed. He's eating crackers in bed. So it's like that's a joke, like don't eat crackers in bed. Like, you know, it's like that's the reason why people respond to this movie, because it works on both sides. It's it's funny just because it's funny he's changing costumes and it's funny because we're making a grander statement about no matter what the uniform, the corruption and the greed is always the same. So we're talking about this movie not getting its due when it comes out, but you know, it, it clearly is being embraced more and more, especially in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. Did Groucho ever kind of get the respect that he deserved, do you think? Well, what did happen is in 1974, he got an honorary Oscar, but it was also him kind of standing in for everybody, as he made really, really clear in his speech. And by the way, Jack Lemmon introduces him in the clip we're about to, to play, and he says this about the Marx Brothers. He says that they were as revolutionary in their approach to humor as Karl Marx was to politics. Wow. <laughs> that is a statement. I want to thank those who voted for me to give this award. I wish to Harpo and Chico could be here to share with me this great honor. I wish Margaret Dumont could be here too. She was a great straight woman for me, even though she never understood any of my jokes. She used to say, Judy, 
What are they laughing at? <laughs> but most of all, I want to thank my mother. Because without her, we never would have been anything. And last of all, I'd like to thank Aaron Fleming, who makes my life worth living, and who understands all my jokes. It's a very sweet uh, speech, and again, another dig on Margaret Dumont. Yeah, man, it's like, even <laughs> in death, he's got to make her the straight woman. <laughs> yeah, his mom, by the way, you know, his mom really was this force who, like, marshaled all of the brothers to be on stage. I think the story is, like, her dad was a ventriloquist. She was just raised to be a performer, and so when she saw she had a bunch of, like, rambunctious boys who were all really good at music and performing, she was like, get out there, kids, make me some money. So, Amy, it's number 60 on the list. Do you believe that Duck Soup belongs on the list? Yeah, definitely. This seems like an yeah. absolute to me. I'm surprised it's as low as 60, honestly. You know, I think, again, comedy is always going to fall in the spot that it's never going to be super high. There's nothing interesting production-wise about this movie. You know, it's all in the performance. Uh, it's not even really a uh, a great film in the sense of story. But despite all of that, it works. It's hilarious. And to me, the greatest thing about this movie is in 2018, I am laughing literally out loud watching this film. And to have a comedy that has that much life and legs to it, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, there's something in their spirit that just feels as fresh to me today. Yeah. Like, I want to see more of this type of comedy. I want to see more just like, brah. Like, I get a little bored with the, like, I fall down, go boom type of comedy. Or like the, hey, I'm walking through a room and it's my penis type of comedy. Right. Like this comedy, this comedy that just gives like the world the finger, but not in a way that's like violent is, is it's so rare. Like it's kind of, I don't, I, you can't call them cuddly. Like they are absolute right. forces of mayhem. They're like the Tasmanian devil. Well, there is also something about this where it doesn't feel stylized to the period. There's a lot of these movies that I love that have a very rapid fire pace and everyone's talking like this. And, you know, The Thin Man, one of my favorite films, it feels of the time. This feels less so. And I wonder if that's the stage performance nature of them or the way they spoke to, quote unquote, like the common people, you know, and they had so much experience being out there that they're tone was much more relatable and that allows them to carry over till now. I mean, we're going to talk about other comedies on this list that probably are a little bit more stylized, uh, but this doesn't have any of those affectations really. Well, you feel it like going up and trying to tear down affectations. I mean, because just Margaret Dumont's type of speaking voice that she has here is nothing but affectation. Yeah. The way she talks feels so old, so like classic, so like wobbly, like, oh, goodness. And then for that to just keep clashing up against Groucho Marx, it is a really good combination. It feels like one type of style of performance bashing its head against another one. And in my mind, I think watching these movies as a kid, you just assumed that that's how everyone spoke back then. Everyone was like that. No, it was performative on one side of it. And they're, you know, and and I love that idea that they were ripping that down even in the 30s. Like, no, we're not going to follow this type of acting performance. You know, and I think that that's something that Marlon Brando does on the dramatic side where he's doing that method acting. We talked about that a little bit on African Queen, like the idea where he's taking down artifice. They're also taking down artifice, but for two different uh, purposes. So 60, too low? Maybe too low, maybe too low. Although it's been a really long time since I've seen Night at the Opera, so I'm curious how I'll feel when we get to that one. I cannot wait. Now, Amy, instead of rolling the die this week, um, we are going to do something a little bit different. 
for our next episode. You don't have to watch anything. It's a catch-up week for you all. We're going to do a little AMA. uh, You can ask us anything you want. Uh, We pulled some questions from our Facebook listener group, uh, and we are going to reveal our now newly ordered list of the AFI based on our first 25 films that we saw. So put together your list, get your questions in, and we'll be answering them. Take a week off, catch up on these movies, and uh, I'm excited for this. Uh, Also, before we uh, say goodbye, Amy, uh, a big uh, shout out again to uh, Morgan Messenheimer, who sends us some great stuff in addition to the stuff that we have been pulling ourselves. And also a shout out to Kim Truxel, who every week sends us awesome Photoshop. She blows me out of the water. Yeah, you can follow Amy and I on our Twitter and Instagram pages to see some of her amazing art. It's also on our Earwolf uh, pages as well. Make sure you continue this conversation on Earwolf.com and on our Facebook listener group. And here's a little plug for us. If you like this show, please rate and review it. Subscribe on Apple. Even if that's not what your preferred listening device is, it just helps the show and uh, it's all good for us it's good for you it's free and it's fun and keep on telling your friends because we have uh seen a lot of people coming in fresh so we really appreciate that Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Ah, uh, yes. I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. Ah! Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.